Well, with that, do make sure you have your Bibles in hand as we open them to the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Once again, that's 2 Chronicles chapter 34. I hope that you are hungry for God's Word today. I hope you're thirsty for the living water from God's Word today. This month, we're joining hundreds of thousands of spiritually thirsty Christians throughout our nation who are crying out to God to move in a fresh, extraordinary way in our nation. We are praying for revival. And so today is part three in this series that we're going through here in the month of March. We're focused on revival and asking God to bring revival to his church and to our nation. Well, for 40 years, Columbia has had the distinction of being the world's number one producer and exporter of, not coffee, cocaine. Cocaine. The number one producer and exporter of cocaine. Sending as much as 1,000 tons of it into the U.S. and Europe every year. In the 1990s, 70% of the Colombian drug trade was controlled by the cartel in the city of Cali. The Cali cartel was one of the largest, richest, and best organized criminal organizations in history. They were exporting half a billion dollars of cocaine every single month. As cartel members drove their shiny black Mercedes through the city streets of Cali, uh, the people in town quickly realized that they needed to pull to the side of the road as if an ambulance was coming. Because when the caravan of black Mercedes were coming down the street, if you were blocking their way as they were making their way somewhere across the side of town, if you blocked their path, some of their thugs would jump out and oftentimes shoot you dead right there in the street. It was very common for as many as 15 people a day to be killed for failing to get out of the way of those Mercedes making their way down the streets. By the early 1990s, Cali became one of the most corrupt cities in the world. Cartel interests controlled virtually every major institution, including banks and businesses, and even the government and the police department there in Cali. And like everyone else in the city, Christians were weak and they were scared. Every pastor was working on his own. Churches weren't interested in coming together. But in the mid-1990s, all of that changed. A few pastors started meeting for prayer, and their prayers were very specific. They prayed for the Christians in Cali, particularly the pastors, to become spiritually hungry, to develop a hunger for prayer, for unity, and for holiness. A few pastors decided to rent the city's civic auditorium and assemble their congregations for an evening of joint worship, repentance, and prayer. Well, they were determined to seek God's active participation in their stand against the drug cartels and the demons that controlled those drug cartels. Many people told the pastors, uh, no one will come. No one's going to show up for this prayer event. They think they're going to be sitting ducks for the cartel if the cartel finds out they were there praying against them. No one's going to come. But despite the naysayers, the pastors prepared for a few thousand people and when the event finally was held in May of 1995, more than 25,000 people filled the auditorium. Nearly half of the city's evangelical Christian population at the time filled that stadium. 
At one point, the mayor of Cali mounted the platform and proclaimed, Cali belongs to Jesus Christ. And something broke loose in the crowd when the mayor spoke those words. The city's famous all-night prayer vigil, the Vigilia, was born. 48 hours after the event, the daily newspaper, the El Pais, headlined, No Homicides. No homicides. For the first time in as long as anybody in the city could remember, a 24-hour period had passed without a single person being killed. In a nation cursed with the highest homicide rate in the world, this was a newsworthy development. Corruption also took a major hit when over the next four months, 900 cartel-linked officers were fired from the Metropolitan Police Force. The Colombian government declared all-out war against the drug lords. One by one, the cartel leaders were arrested or killed. Tens of thousands of Christians were revived, and countless unbelievers were saved. Revival had come to Cali, Colombia, the most unlikely place on the earth where revival could come. The Cali revival gives us a taste of what could happen If God moves in the third great awakening here in the United States of America, it gives us a taste of what could happen here in our own country. This month at Impact, we've been taking a closer look at what revival is and what we can do to prepare for it. We've seen that revival is the extraordinary work of God among his people causing extraordinary results in and through the church. We've seen three key things in this definition. Number one, truth number one, revival is a work of God, not man. You and I cannot manufacture revival. We can't even schedule revival. It is an act and work of God. Truth number two, revival is not just a normal work of God. It's an extraordinary work of God. We don't deny the fact that God is always at work among his people night and day, every day of the week, every week of the month, every month of the year. God is always at work, but during a period of revival, God works in extraordinary ways that blow our socks off. And then finally, truth number three, revival always begins with God's people. First of all, revival comes to the church, and when God's people are set on fire by the Holy Spirit, secondly, revival spills into the streets, and we see tens of thousands, in some instances, hundreds of thousands or even millions of people saved by the power of God moving through his people, the church. Now, when it comes to the question of how we as a church can prepare for revival, our key verse this month has been Second Chronicles 7.14. Remember that great verse where God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So if we want to reap and benefit from those three great promises of God at the end of this verse, that he would hear our prayers, that he would forgive our sin, that he would heal our land, then we need to carry out these four steps in the first part of the verse. We have to humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. Now, last Sunday, we studied the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians there in the book of Ephesians chapter 3. And we focused, as we looked at that prayer, on the first three steps to ushering in revival. Paul's amazing prayer in Ephesians 3 highlights how vital it is that we humble ourselves and pray 
and seek God's face. Once again, remember, we can't manufacture revival, but we can certainly swing open the doors to allow the Spirit of God to rush in and do what he's wanted to do for a long time, but we didn't allow him to. And so we saw in that prayer, those first three steps, uh, Paul was praying that the the people of Ephesus, the Christians in Ephesus, would continue to humble themselves and and pray and, and seek the face of God. This morning, as we turn to 2 Chronicles 34, we're going to take a closer look at one of the most inspiring revivals in the Old Testament, a revival that I believe highlights how critical step number four is. The revival under King Josiah shows us that if we are serious about revival coming to the church in America, we must be serious about turning from our wicked ways. So our focus today is on the revival in the days of King Josiah, and specifically step number four there in Second Chronicles 7.14. The people of God, if they want God to move in extraordinary ways, if they want God to bring revival, they must not just humble themselves, pray, and seek his face. They must turn from their wicked ways. Well, if you've ever studied the Old Testament books of Kings and Chronicles, you know that after King David's son Solomon died, the nation of Israel split in true, split in two. There were ten tribes in the north. We refer to those northern uh, kingdom tribes uh, together as the nation of Israel or the nation of Ephraim. And then the two tribes in the south that remained true to the line of David and King Solomon's son and grandsons. Uh, those in the south, those two tribes huddled around Jerusalem, uh, we refer to as Judah. So you had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And one of my favorite kings of the southern kingdom of Judah was King Josiah. His grandfather, King Manasseh, was one of the most evil kings that Judah ever had. Uh, Josiah's father, uh, King Ammon, uh, he was also one of the most evil kings that Judah ever had. And so Josiah comes onto the scene. His dad and his granddad had both been rotten kings. His granddad Manasseh not only was an avid idol worshiper, he was so committed to worshiping idols that he took some of his own sons and threw them into a fire, burning them to death as sacrifices to a pagan god. That's how committed he was to worshiping idols. And then as I mentioned, Manasseh's son Ammon King Josiah's dad, he wasn't much better. He was also an idol worshiper. In fact, he was assassinated just two years after he came to the throne. He was assassinated at the age of 24. So as you might guess, if King Josiah's dad was assassinated at the age of 24, when King Josiah became king, he had to be a young little feller, right? And we read in Second Chronicles 34 that, yes, in fact, he was a pretty young little guy. He was only eight years old when he became king. So follow along with me in your Bibles. Let's start with the first 10 verses here in Second Chronicles chapter 34, beginning in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, carved idols, and cast images. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals and 
They were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them, smashed the Asherah poles, the idols, and the images. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem in the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali and in the ruins around them. He tore down the altars and the Asherah poles and crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. In the eighth year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphah, son of Azaliah, and Messiah, the ruler of the city, with Joah, son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. They went to Hilkiah the high priest and gave him the money that had been brought into the temple of God, which the Levites, who were the doorkeepers, had collected from the people of Manasseh, Ephraim, and the entire remnant of Israel, and from all the people of Judah and Benjamin, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then they entrusted it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the Lord's temple. These men paid the workers who repaired and restored the temple. May God bless us as we study his word and apply it to our lives today. Well, let's talk briefly about those 10 verses. What is said about King Josiah in verse 2 is one of the things I love about Josiah. Notice what it says in verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Just about every time a king is mentioned here in Chronicles, and I think every time, but I'll say just about, just to be safe. I haven't reviewed all of them recently. But pretty much every time the king is mentioned, God's word either says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord or he didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So Josiah did what was right. He was one of those minority kings uh, who actually did it right. Most of the kings didn't. And I would love God to say this about me. At the end of my life, when I stand before Christ on Judgment Day, many of you have heard me say this before, I want Jesus Christ to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And this is something else I would love for him to, to say about me to others. Dane did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Wouldn't you love the Lord to say that about you when he's talking to Gabriel or talking to the archangel Michael or, 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 or talking uh, to others to be able to say, you know what? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But she did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. King Josiah didn't walk in the ways of his father Ammon. He didn't walk in the wicked ways of his grandfather Manasseh. He walked in the ways of his great, 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 great grandfather David. King David was 13 generations removed from King Josiah, but he went all the way back 13 generations and modeled his reign after his great, 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 great grandfather, King David, the man we know as the man after God's own heart. That's pretty remarkable. Let me ask you, who in your family do you model your Christian walk after? Some of us come from godly families, and we can look to our father or mother as godly role models for us. Others of us have to look a little bit further back to our grandparents who are godly role models. Some of us go back several generations, and we can't find a single godly role model. So let me ask you, who do you model your Christianity after? Someone you know. And if you don't know anyone in your family who follows Christ well that can serve as a role model, it's a good thing you're a part of a church. Because I can guarantee you, even if you can't find 
a biological relative to look up to who follows Christ well, you can find at Impact Christian Church many men and women of God who follow Christ well that you can look up to, that you can emulate in some way. Paul says it so well. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. I want you to follow Christ more than anyone else. But if there's something you see in me or others at our church that is worth emulating, then by all means, you can follow that example. What a wonderful thing the church is. Some of us are stronger in some areas than others. And together, we can help like iron sharpens iron, help each other follow Christ better than ever. One of the things I love about King Josiah is how he chose to follow and serve God at such a young age. If you do some quick math after reading these first 10 verses of 2 Chronicles 34, I think it's very encouraging. Uh, Catch this. At age 8, Josiah became king. We see that in verse 1. At age 16, Josiah began to seek the God of David. We find that in verse 3. Amen? So at the age of 16, he's just a teenager, he begins seeking God. At the age of 20, he began to purge Judah of all idols. We also find that in verse 3. And then at the age of 26, he repaired and purified the temple. We read that in verse 8. So those that think that young people, kids and teenagers, cannot be effective leaders in the church, I think they're just dead wrong. So often we find God uses young people in extraordinary ways. Remember Jesus said, a little child will lead them. He told his disciples, he told his apostles, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this is a wonderful example of how the Spirit of God sometimes will stir in the hearts of young people to lead others closer to Christ. Now, at this point, revival was stirring. For 10 years, God had been stirring the heart of Josiah. And as pagan worship centers were being demolished and the temple was being repaired, God was stirring the hearts of many Israelites. But the extraordinary move of God was still yet to come. Now, for the sake of time, let's skip down to verse 14 here in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, picking up in verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken from the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan. Then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him, Your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord, have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of King Josiah. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Aldon, son of Micah, Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant of Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. It appears that during the reign of one of King Josiah's evil granddads, one of the priests 
had hidden a scroll of the Torah, those first five books of the Old Testament, had hidden that scroll somewhere in the temple, fearing that it was going to be destroyed or burned by one of those evil kings that hated God and hated God's laws. And so a scroll of Moses had been hidden somewhere in the temple and probably had been hidden for several generations. Evidently, this priest, several generations prior, had feared that it was going to be lost forever. So when the high priest Hilkiah found it, he gives it to the king's secretary, Shaphan, who in turn reads it to the king. Now, how did King Josiah respond? Verse 19, he tore his robes as a sign of deep grief, and I believe also a sign of fear, because those words were pretty scary when God promised in the Old Testament law that judgment was coming, and God's curse would be upon Israelites if they denied and rejected his law and turned their backs on him. So it seems clear to me that Josiah trembled when Shaphan read passages. And I imagine passages like Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 11, are passages that in it, that especially caused uh, Josiah to tremble. This is what is said in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 11. Uh, God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with, and go to that next slide, with a mighty hand and a redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. After hearing Shaphan read all the laws God had given to Israel and knowing in his heart that for years Judah and her leaders had been ignoring and disobeying many of those laws, Josiah had a pit in his stomach. And I think he was scared to death. God had been very clear with his people. If you obey my commands, I will bless you. But if you forsake and ignore my commands and disobey my commands, I will judge you and I will destroy you. So King Josiah asked Shaphan to inquire of the Lord, to find out what God's plan was. There's no indication that Josiah tried to make excuses for Judah's sin or to talk God out of bringing judgment. He just wanted to know what God's plan was. He wanted to know what God's plan was. Let's pick up in verse 22. Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him went to speak to the prophetess Hulda, who was the wife of Shalim, son of Tohath, the son of Haroth, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. She said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah because they have forsaken me and turned in and burned incense to other gods 
and provoked me to anger by all that their hands have made. My anger will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people, and because you humbled yourself before me and you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Now I will gather you to your fathers and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place and on those who live here. So they took her answer back to the king. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledge themselves to it. The people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Josiah removed all the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites and he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. As long as Josiah lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their fathers. What a great, great passage. What a marvelous revival. There are several prophetesses mentioned in the Bible. Deborah in the book of Judges, uh, the daughters of Philip in the book of Acts, uh, all are called out as prophetesses. And here is yet another prophetess in scripture, and this one is my favorite. Hulda is my favorite prophetess. Hulda didn't sugarcoat God's message. She told Josiah in no uncertain terms, God is going to bring disaster on Jerusalem and its people. God's anger will be poured out and will not be quenched because they have forsaken God and provoked him to anger by all that their hands have made. In other words, judgment was coming, and there's nothing anyone could do to stop it from coming. However, because King Josiah had torn his robes and humbled himself before God and wept over Israel's sin, God was going to delay his judgment. It wouldn't come until after Josiah's death. In verse 30, King Josiah gathered all the people of Judah from the least to the greatest, and he read all the book of the covenant to them. That's likely a reference to the whole book of Deuteronomy. Imagine that, just listening and being glued to every word as he read the entire book of Deuteronomy. And King Josiah led the people in a renewal of their covenant with God. This is done several times in the Old Testament. King Josiah does it here. They renew that covenant because they had forsaken it in prior generations. They promised to turn from their sin and worship and obey God alone. And they did what they promised to do at least as long as King Josiah was alive. Once again, the chapter ends in verse 33 with these words, As long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their fathers. The people of Judah turned from their wicked ways. They carried out step number four from Second Chronicles 7.14. They turned from their wicked ways. God moved and he worked in extraordinary ways. Revival had come 
to Judah, God was moving like he hadn't moved in many, many years. Amen? Amen. Now, let's take a few minutes to look in the mirror. Hey, we can't just talk about King Josiah and talk about ancient Israel. God wants us today to look in the mirror. Is it safe to assume that all of you would agree with me when I say, here in America, we've got a sin problem? I think it's safe to say you all agree with me on that, right? America has a sin problem. We have a whole lot of wickedness in our nation, right? It's true. Even if you disagree with me, I hate to break it to you, it's true. America has a sin problem. There's a whole lot of wickedness in our nation. Now, if we desire to bring revival to our nation in much the same way that God brought revival to the nation of Judah in the days of King Josiah, we have to repent, right? We have to repent. We're not given a free pass for our sin. The people of Judah had to turn from their wicked ways, and we in America need to turn from our wicked ways. So we need to honestly answer a couple questions. Question number one. What are America's greatest sins that need to be confessed and turned from? You'd agree that this is an important question to answer, wouldn't you? Because if this is step number four, according to 2 Chronicles 7, 14, that God's people, to have him hear from heaven, forgive our sin, and heal our land, we must turn from our wicked ways. We've got to know what those wicked ways are. So what are some of the wicked ways that are being carried out here in America? Go ahead and answer that question. What are some of the wicked things that take place in America? Got an answer or two? Okay, great. Here are 10 of America's sins, uh, according to many Christians out there. Now, you could come up with a longer list, but here are the 10 of the most common sins that Christians in America point out are plaguing our nation. Let's go through these pretty quickly. Number one. Heterosexual sin, fornication, adultery, porn, and the like. Number two, homosexual sin. Many Christians say this is one of the the greatest sins in America today, is is homosexual sin uh, and transgender sin. We could lump into that. Number three, many Christians say abortion is the number one sin or one of the greatest sins in our nation today. Violence against children. Number four, murder and rape, violence against adults. Number five, some might say drug trafficking because... Uh, in this modern day of ours, there's still billions and billions of dollars worth of drugs coming across the border, being produced within uh, the confines of the border, and being peddled on kids and teenagers and adults. Some would say drug trafficking, one of the greatest blights on our country. Number six, some would say greedy imperialism. Uh, uh, the track record in America at times of going to other nations and forcing our will upon those that didn't want us to force our will upon them. Number seven, many would say slavery and racism, one of the most heinous sins in our nation. Number eight, some would say denial of rights of indigenous peoples. Many point to the fact that we came into this nation several centuries ago, and uh, we gave uh, the Native Americans a really raw deal, slaughtered many of them, wiped out entire tribes at times, and those that weren't killed were shoved off their land and forced to go somewhere else. So some point to that sin. Uh, Number nine, some point to the denial of rights for women, sexism. And then number 10, some Christians would point out idolatry. Now, from a biblical standpoint, every one of these 10 sins is a blight 
on our nation. Now, you probably noticed that I color-coded these sins. I can't see it quite as well on the screen from my angle, but you probably noticed the top four are in red, and then numbers uh, six through nine are in blue. Why did I do that? Why are, why are these sins color-coded? That's a great question. I am so glad that you asked. <laughs> why did I do that? Well, I wanted to point out this little insight. A minute ago, I asked you the question, what are America's greatest sins? Guess what? How you answered that question in all likelihood reveals how you vote. If you are a Christian who leans hard right and votes Republican, I bet you find America's greatest sins right here in red. Heterosexual sin, homosexual sin, abortion, or murder. If you tend to be a Christian who almost always votes Republican, in all likelihood, those were the sins that came to mind first. Now, that's not to say that you don't think these others, five through ten, are sins in our nation. You probably do. But these, you would tend to say, are the greater sins. Now, if you're a Christian who leans hard left and tends to vote Democrat, I bet you find America's greatest sins right here in blue. You would tend to say, and these would be the ones that come to your mind first, the greatest sins in America, past or present, imperialism, slavery and racism, denial of rights to indigenous people, and denial of rights to women, sexism. That's just what would tend to come to mind first. That's not to say that you don't think these others are sins. These just come to mind as the greater sins. So, what's my point? Well, here's my point. When we Christians confess sin and repent, most of the time we tend to confess and repent of our own personal sins. And on the rare occasion when we do confess the sins of our nation, we tend to confess the sins that disgust us the most. For many of us, abortion disgusts us the most. And so we find abortion to be one of the most repulsive sins imaginable. So when we confess that sin and repent in our prayers, we pray something like this. Father God, have mercy on us. Please forgive us for murdering our babies. That's a great prayer of confession, isn't it? Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us because it grieves our heart that little innocent babies are being slaughtered in their mother's womb. Brothers of us, slavery and racism disgust us the most. We view slavery as one of the most repulsive sins. So we cry out, Father God, have mercy on us. Please forgive our nation for discriminating against and enslaving people because of the color of their skin. Men, women, children who you created to be free. That's also a great prayer of confession for a sin in our nation, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, hear me loud and clear on this. If we are serious about turning from our wicked ways and ushering in an extraordinary move of God, we cannot simply confess and turn from the sins of our nation that disgust us. We must confess and turn from all sin because all sin disgusts God. That's what I wanted you to see with this list of ten. Some hit closer to home than others. Some repulse us more than others. 
But it's not about what just repulses us. We need to pray that God would forgive our nation for all sin that repulses him. We need to go to our holy God in prayer and confess the sins of our nation, past and present. Father God, please have mercy on us. Please forgive us for our lust and our sexual sin. Forgive us for rebelling against your perfect design for marriage and sex and gender. Please forgive us for killing our babies in their mother's wombs for the sake of convenience. Please forgive us for shedding innocent blood. Please forgive us uh, for for standing by and, and doing nothing as evil men push drugs on our kids. Please forgive us for forcing other nations to submit to our will against their will. Please forgive us for enslaving over 5 million African Americans and carrying out untold tragedies on Native Americans in the early years of our nation. Forgive us for treating women as less human than men. Forgive us, O Lord, for our greatest sin, which is idolatry, holding people and things as higher priorities than you. We have pushed you aside, O God, and have chosen to lift ourselves up as God. We don't deserve your mercy, O God, but please have mercy on us anyway. Forgive us and help us to walk in repentance in Jesus' name. Amen. Chances are it's been a long time, if ever, since we've confessed sins of our nation that don't come to our mind first when we think of sin in our nation. But there are many more sins that our nations have committed, that our nation has committed, I should say, than we have considered recently. There are many sins in our nation that we need to confess and turn from. But remember that the greatest blame for the sin in our nation lies with the church. We Christians need to deal with our own sin first. That being the case, we do need to honestly answer this second question. Question number two, what are the church's greatest sins that need to be confessed and turned from? If we truly are going to pay attention to what God says in 2 Chronicles 7.14, that we need to humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways, we've got to answer this question, even though it hits closer to home. What sins, O God, has the church in America been committing that we need to confess and turn from? Well, how do we find an answer to that question? You could go to Galatians 5 and find the acts of the sinful nature that Paul talks about before mentioning the fruit of the Spirit. You could go over to Proverbs chapter 6 and find the list of seven things that God hates. But largely, those lists are directed to the individual, individual sins that God hates and, and tells us we must avoid. Where do we go in Scripture to find what Jesus grieves over in regard to the church? Well, I think one of the best places to go is Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus writes individual letters to the seven different churches in Asia Minor. And in those letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, he calls out five of those churches for specific sins. And so I think this produces the best list of sins that exist in the church in America. Let me point out six sins that we can pull from Revelation 2 and 3. Number one, he calls out in chapter two of Revelation, the church in Ephesus for forsaking their first love. I think we've done the same thing to a large extent in the church in America. We have forsaken our first love. We don't love the Lord, our God. We don't love our Lord, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Sin number two in the church at Pergamum, 
doctrinal and moral compromise. You know this exists in churches throughout this nation. We are compromising morally. Christians are compromising doctrinally. We're getting soft on sin. We're ignoring parts of the word of God to be culturally relevant and accepted by non-Christians and to seem less fringe. Number three, uh, Jesus calls out the church in Thyatira for tolerating false teachers. We do that in America, don't we? In the church in America, we tolerate many false teachers. Number four, he calls out the church in Sardis for having a faith that is dead. It's not active. It's not making a, a tangible difference in the lives of God's people. They believe in God. They have intellectual understanding of Jesus Christ, but it doesn't affect their day-to-day life. Their faith is dead. It's inactive faith. Number five, he calls out the church in Laodicea for having lukewarm deeds. We see that in Revelation chapter 3. He says, I wish you were hot or cold because you're lukewarm. I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. And we find that many Christians and many churches are lukewarm. They're not hot for Jesus. They're not even cold for Jesus. They're just milk toast. They're lukewarm. Finally, I added number six here, which I think is kind of a running theme through all of the rebukes that God gives uh, to the churches there in Revelation 2 and 3. And that's a lack of impact in society. It's a lack of impact in society. All six of these churches' uh, sins have this in common. Jesus has been sidelined. What's really going on when we forsake our first love? Jesus is being sidelined. What's really going on? We're pushing him to the side. We're putting him on the back burner. We make church about rituals and traditions and what we want instead of keeping Jesus at the very center of everything we do. What's really going on when we make doctrinal and moral compromises? Well, Jesus is being sidelined. Instead of allowing him to have the final say on what is doctrinally and morally right, I decide, you decide, we decide. We're pushing Jesus on the back burner. We're sidelining him when it comes to the teaching and the morals. We're making that decision. What's really going on when we tolerate false teachers? Jesus is being sidelined. We're more concerned about hurting the false teacher's feelings than we are about hurting Jesus' feelings. We're more concerned about people leaving the church than we are about Jesus leaving the church. What's really going on when our faith is dead? Jesus is being sidelined. What's really going on when our deeds are lukewarm and our impact in society is non-existent? Jesus is being sidelined. So we need to go to our holy God in prayer and confess the sins of the church in America. Father God, please have mercy on us. Please forgive us for sidelining Jesus, for putting him on the back burner and making the church all about us instead of keeping it all about him. Please forgive us for not loving Jesus with all our hearts. Please forgive us for our doctrinal and moral compromise. Please forgive us for tolerating false teachers and being more worried about what people think of us than about what you think of us. Please forgive us for having a dead faith, lukewarm deeds, and for allowing the church to be irrelevant in our nation. We don't deserve your mercy, O God, but please have mercy on us anyway. Forgive us and help us to walk in repentance in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you sense the power in these kinds of prayers? Because they are biblically grounded, because they are Christ-centered, and because they echo the heart of Christ who abhors sin but loves righteousness. Oh, these are biblical, powerful, revival-sweeping prayers.
In the mid-1990s, God moved in the city of Cali, Colombia in extraordinary ways as the church in Cali confessed the sin of the city of Cali, and they turned from that sin, and the church in Cali confessed the sin in the churches of Cali and turned from that sin. God brought revival there, and I believe he will bring revival here if we will humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. He will hear from heaven. He will forgive our sin. And Jesus Christ will heal our land. You see, turning from our sin begins with confessing our sin. And there's no doubt we have a lot of confessing to do. Please pray. Heavenly Father, this passage in 2 Chronicles 34 is rich. Lord, I wish we had had more time to discuss it this morning, Lord, because we could spend a lot longer talking about the richness and power in this great chapter. Lord, thank you. Thank you for moving in such an extraordinary way in the days of King Josiah. Thank you for prompting his heart to be humble before you, to tear his clothes, to repent of his sin, and to confess the sin of his nation. And even though he didn't personally commit most of those sins, he confessed the sins of his nation, past and present, and said, oh God, have mercy on us. And he led his people to change from that moment forward. Thank you, God, for responding, for hearing from heaven, forgiving their sin, and healing their land. Thank you, O God, for moving in the mid-90s in Cali, Colombia, the most unlikely place where you would move in many people's minds. You moved in incredible, extraordinary ways. O God, we know you moved there. We ask you to move here. Help us, O God, to repent of our sin, the sins that put pits in our stomach and even the sins that don't. Help us to repent for the sins of the church and the sins of our nation, the ones we have personally committed and even those we haven't. Lord Jesus, help us to not be so self-centered in our prayers of confession. Help us to open our eyes to all the sin in our nation and all the sin in our church and plead for your mercy. And we pray, O God, that as we turn from our wicked ways, that you would, in fact, hear from heaven, forgive our sin, and heal our land for the glory of God and the advancement of Christ's kingdom here on earth. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring revival to your nation. Bring revival to this church of ours. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're here today and you've never made a decision for Jesus Christ, can't you sense him pulling at your heart today? You've got to stop living life on your own terms. You've got to stop doing it your way. Your way is going to get you nowhere fast. And when you die one of these days, it's going to be a dead end if you don't have Christ in your life. If you know you need him to come in and wash your sins away and take the driver's seat of your life, we encourage you today to admit that you are a sinner. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he's your only hope of making it to heaven someday and choose to begin following Jesus Christ today. He doesn't want to ride shotgun. He wants to take the wheel of your life. He wants to be your savior and 
your Lord. If you're ready to make that decision today, reach out to us. We'd love to help walk you through that. And if you're serious about making that decision to put Jesus Christ in charge, you need to be baptized as soon as possible. That's Jesus' command. You need to be baptized to make it clear that your old life is buried with Christ and you're raised to walk a new life of following him from this point forward. Oh, reach out to us if you need to make a decision for Christ, if you need to be baptized, if you need to rededicate your life to Christ, or if you want to say, you know what, I want Impact to be my church home. Whatever decision you have to make today, reach out to us. By phone, you can reach us at 760-246-4100, or you can email us at info at greaterimpact.cc. We sure look forward to hearing from you. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to stay around a few moments as we're going to take communion here in just a moment to end the service. If you're not going to be joining us for communion, I want to say may the, God, may the Lord Jesus Christ bless you and keep you. May he be gracious to you, make his face to shine upon you, and give you peace as you love and trust and obey his word. Amen.